Shalom, mishpocha. Shalom, family. Mishpocha is a Hebrew word. It means family. <laughs> We're the mishpocha, the family with the Jewish heart, made up of Jewish and non-Jewish people. With the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, it's finally come down to form one new man. Getting ready, mishpocha, to blow the grandest shofar or the grandest trumpet in Zion. We want everyone, everywhere, to hear the good news. We want everyone, everywhere, to be red hot for the Messiah. And we're coming into an amazing time in the history of planet Earth. We're getting ready for the great Jewish wedding. We're getting ready for the wrap-up. And one thing that occurred to me is we have had an emphasis we have had an emphasis in the body of Messiah on understanding who Jesus is. We've had an emphasis in the body of Messiah in understanding who the Holy Spirit is. But we're getting ready for an outpouring of a revelation of who God the Father is. And in order for you to understand who God the Father is, God raises up an individual who their life experience allows you to grasp this spiritual truth. And I have such a person on the telephone. Her name is A.J. Jones, and she has experienced the love of the Father and she maintains, and I maintain, that we cannot receive the love God has for us, the security God has for us, the peace that God has for us, the healing that God has for us, the rest that God has for us, the promises that God has for us, unless we come to have intimacy. And that's the right word. Now, I come from a Jewish background which is similar to many people that come from a Catholic background. You see God up there in the sky with a big, big stick ready to hit you over the head the minute you make a mistake, and you don't understand the new covenant revelation that says God is love. But unless you can experience the love of the Father, then it's like a brick wall on these other promises from God. And A.J. has a revelation of this. Uh, AJ, I'm going to take you back to the beginning, so to speak. Uh, what are the earliest memories you have of your father? Well, um, my father was an alcoholic, and he was um, very angry. So um, my earliest memory, um, I think I was around three, and it was my parents were fighting, and I came downstairs to ask them to stop, and I was just standing there yelling, stop it, stop it, and... Um, my dad, in his anger, picked up a chair and threw it and knocked me down a flight of stairs. Um, that, that had to be about as traumatic. Here, here you look to your father as your source of protection, so to speak, your covering, so to speak. Uh, your trust must have gone out the window when he did that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know if I ever really saw my dad like that because he was always so scary to me. So... Yes. Because he was drinking. Yeah, and he was angry. I mean, he was very angry. I, I don't quite understand it because, fortunately, I've never been an alcoholic. Um, but I normally see there's a lot of anger with alcoholics. Yeah, well, there's a reason that they're drinking. 
you know, they're trying to deal with something, too, that they're going through. And it just comes out with those people that are closest to you, doesn't it? Yeah. Did you hurt yourself when you fell down the stairs? I, you know, I don't particularly remember that experience that well. I remember it hurt. I don't know if I broke anything or anything with that, with that one. Now, what about your mother? Would she stand up for you when your father was drunk? Yeah, well, she would, she would yell. I mean, everybody yelled in our house, but she would yell. Or um, if my older brother was home, he'd try and get in the way. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, it was such a scary environment to even try and um, survive in. But, my, I mean, most of my dad's anger was directed towards my mother, but it's just that I would get in the way because I just couldn't handle watching him choke her or, you know, do whatever he was doing. So... And now your mother drank also. Yeah, she did. And and uh, and th- this sounds awful, but your mother, who, who had that maternal instinct to protect her children, tried to protect you uh, with your your safe place, the closet. Tell me about that. Well, I would hide in the closet. I had a bunch of um, like stuffed animals and stuff in the closet, and um, if they were fighting, usually they fought at like you know midnight or two in the morning or whatever, I would go and I would, you know, close my door and kind of barricade myself into the closet and, um, and sit with my stuffed animals. And, uh, so she tried to make that a safe place for me to hide. Uh, and, and, uh, you developed, and, and what I find is many people that develop specific diseases, uh, there, there are psychological reasons that they've entered into those diseases. One is asthma. Now, uh, obviously, with everything going on in your life, uh, uh, it's understandable how the asthma got triggered. And this was not just your ordinary asthma, uh, but uh, uh, it was pretty bad in your case. Yeah, it was very bad. It was very, very bad. It, um, it wasn't sort of average asthma. It was um, severe asthma. And so I would often have um, attacks, like I would have them several times a week and not just like you would use a puffer and then be fine. I would end up in the hospital. You know, I spent time in oxygen tents. Um, my, by the time I, um, was about 18 or 19, I had over 400 hospital bracelets. So, I mean, I had a a really tough time with it. And, and, uh, your, your parents, um, separated for obvious reasons. And uh, as, as a matter of fact, they, and they were headed towards divorce. Uh, but so uh, you were you're staying for safety purposes with your grandparents. Uh, but you decided to go back home to your mother because your mother assured you your father was gone. Uh, but he wasn't, was he? Well, he wasn't. Like they had, um, you know, done the whole legal separation and gotten two different. Uh, houses to live in, but um, we had to go back to the house that we all lived in together to just make sure that we had everything that we wanted because we were moving to a much smaller house. I think they were having somebody come in and get the rest of the stuff or something. And so my mom had said to me, you know, you never have to see your dad again. And uh, when she had picked me up from my grandparents' house, and I was thrilled because I never wanted to see him again. And um, But then when we walked into the ho- the house, the old house, my dad was sitting there in the kitchen, and uh, I was pretty shocked to even, you know, come in the house and find him there because I had been promised I wouldn't ever have to see him, but he was there. Uh, how'd you react? 
Well, not well. I mean, I remember walking in and just sort of freezing, and um, my dad said to me, how can you do this to me? I love you. You know, because the whole separation and divorce had kind of gone down like it was my fault because I had finally told somebody, you know, I was 13 and I just couldn't take it anymore. And um, so anyway, he said, how can, how can you do this to me? I love you. And I remember saying, well, you have a very strange way of showing it and you need to know that I hate you and I hope you die. And I just took off. I just ran out of the house. When he would send you presents, I mean, uh, to me, that's the, 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 the hatred, the fear that you must have had uh, as a young person reacted, your actions reflected it. Uh, but what did you do when your father was trying to make amends and send your presence? Oh, well, my um, my parents sort of excelled at, like, if, if, they, if they messed up, they would, you know, buy a gift because, you know, we had some money to do that. And um, so that was sort of his way of trying to seek restoration. But uh, again, I was so angry um, and so hurt and so afraid. And so he would send gifts and um, it didn't matter how badly I wanted it. And he was good at getting gifts. I would smash them to little tiny pieces and mail them back to his address because I just really wanted him to get the message. I didn't want him in my life anymore. And uh, I mean, he actually sent me flowers twice. And the first time I waited for them to die and then mailed them back. And the second time I didn't have that level of patience. And so I cut them up and I poured Drano over them and mailed them back. So Canada Post was making a lot of money off of my issues. (laughs) Speaking of uh, issues, I mean, you were suicidal, anorexic, suffering from severe asthma. You must have had one miserable life as a young child. Yeah, I was barely surviving. And where was God in this equation? What did you know about God? Uh, I didn't really know anything about God. Um, I went to church sometimes with my mom, um, and but I didn't really get the message that Jesus loved me or, or anything like that. I just remember going and thinking it was about dressing properly or acting properly, and it didn't really feel like life to me. And uh, And then I had a cousin who was, um, the oldest of eight Baptist kids, and she would try and tell me that Jesus loved me, and she would, you know, try and kind of evangelize me. But I was so angry and confused about what my life looked like and how that could possibly line up with God loving me that I couldn't really receive it. Well, your hatred went beyond your father. Uh, you you also had a rivalry with your siblings, uh, uh, especially you and your sister used to fight, and uh, you, you wanted to... Uh, uh, hurt your sister. It was her birthday. And your way of hurting her was to uh, have something else go on. What was that something else? Well, it's funny because with with my sister, um, we didn't usually fight that much. But when we did fight, it was pretty full on. And so we'd had this big fight and it was her birthday. And so I wanted to hurt her feelings. So my Baptist cousin that I was telling you about, she called and she invited me to a youth retreat. And uh, I had no desire to go to a youth retreat, but I did have a desire to get my sister back because I was mad at her. And so I agreed to go away on her birthday. I I tell you what, hold that thought. We'll pick up right here on tomorrow's broadcast. Uh, You know, Mishpocha, uh, many of you have never really ever experienced the love of Father God. And you're in for a treat. And you know, it's possible 
to walk in the love of Father God 24-7. And do you know that when you understand how to receive his love, all of the promises of God, all the peace of God, all the rest of God, it'll be restored to you. And so we have five CDs called Finding Father. I call it Father's Love Kit and a special teaching book on forgiveness by John Arnott, available for a gift of $35. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697. I believe that she was raised up by God to demonstrate and teach his love, the revelation of his love, how to walk in his love, how to have intimacy with God the Father. On yesterday's broadcast, we found out that A.J. Jones was raised in a, a dysfunctional, maybe not be the right word, it's, it's a worse word, but I don't know what it is, a dysfunctional family. Uh, both of her parents drank. Her father was a raging alcoholic, and she was so afraid of him that she, her mother literally put a lock on the closet door uh, so that A.J. could go into the closet and put a lock on with, so to protect her from her father. Uh, and uh, she was thrust at, what, three years of age, she was throwing down a flight of stairs by her father when he was a drunken stupor. Uh, and uh, she had uh, severe asthma to the point where she spent many months in an oxygen tank uh, to the point where uh, she had to live with her, her grandparents. Uh, and uh, there was a time, though, I asked her about uh, if she knew God. She really didn't. Uh, if she was born again, she really wasn't. Uh, and she was upset with her sister. So it was not only problems with her mother and father, but with her siblings. And she wanted to hurt her sister. Her sister was having a birthday party. She figured if she could do something else, that would really hurt her sister. So of all things, AJ, you go to a youth Bible camp, uh, a meeting. Tell me about that. Well, it was kind of funny because my cousin had invited me to about 48 of them before this point, but I'd never really been motivated to go uh, until, you know, this moment when I wanted to hurt my sister. So uh, I remember um, packing my bags and leaving them in the front hall so that when my sister got home, she would see that I was leaving. And um, as I left the house, I was just, I felt like, okay, my goal has now been accomplished. I've hurt my sister. I don't even care what happens the rest of the weekend. But apparently God had a, a bigger plan than that. And um, so we, we drove up to this Baptist retreat center. And uh, I'm pretty sure I was the only person there that didn't know Jesus. You know, they, they all knew the songs and they, you know, all knew when to sit and stand and clap and all that kind of stuff. And I was just sort of completely out of my depth. But um, I remember sitting in this service and um, the preacher was, you know, talking and, and he said, you know, what am I? And he started asking these questions. So he said, you know, what am I? I have four legs and I stay in a family and um, I have a soft back and I'm a cherished possession. And and uh, I was thinking to myself, dude, you're you're a dog, and we're not kids here. Could we move on? I want to, you know, I want to get out of this service, and I want to go play in the snow. And I just really wasn't connecting. And and uh, but then he put up this overhead of a chair, 
And I remember looking at this chair, picture of a chair, and I was totally confused. And he said, you know, you can know everything about something and still miss what it is. You can know how to describe it. You can explain the story of Christmas, you know, but you can still miss what the message was. And he went on to talk about the love of God. And um, I remember for the first time in my life thinking to myself, if what this man is saying is true, then somebody loves me. Not my, you know, brother more or my sister more, but somebody actually loves me. And and if that's true, then just tell me where to sign, you know. So it was, it was a huge moment for me to think, I'm now the age of 15, and I'm thinking somebody actually loves me. Maybe this is going to change everything. So you really had an experience with the love of God, but <laughs> you go home, you, you still have your asthma you're dealing with, you st- still have uh, the, uh, the anorexic condition, you still are suicidal, um, and uh, you're in school. Uh, how how old were you when your mother came and uh, interrupted everything? And you're in class, and you're embarrassed, and you want her out. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was. It was just shortly after I got saved. Actually, it was about six months after I got saved. And um, God had been knocking on my heart about forgiving my dad. And um, you know, with me, the way God did that was He just everywhere I went, I would hear a message on forgiveness. And so I was just like, ah. But every time I heard a message on forgiveness, my answer was no. He doesn't deserve it. And um, so, in the midst of all of that, I'm writing this exam at high school and. Um, my mom comes in while I'm writing the exam and says to the teacher, you know, um, Allison needs to come with me right now, um, and she'll finish her exam later. And I had a, a lot of attitude as a teenager. And um, so I said to my mom in front of all these students, you know, clearly I'm writing an exam and I'll see you in the hallway when I'm done. And so my mom said in front of all the students, your father's in the hospital. He's not going to make it. You need to come and say goodbye right now. And so... You know, I just looked at her and said, I said goodbye a year and a half ago, let him die, and just went back to writing my exam. And um, I had really long hair at the time, and my mom actually used my hair to get me out of the classroom, which wasn't a great moment for me in high school. Um, and we went to the hospital to go and say goodbye to my dad. Uh, he wanted to see only one member of the family. And of all the members of your family, I would have thought you would have been the least likely, but he could only see one member, and he said, I want to see AJ. Yeah. Uh, what did you think when you heard that? Uh, well, I freaked out. I mean, uh, I um, I didn't know why he was there. You know, I didn't know what had happened to get him in the hospital. And basically, this was on a Monday, and on the Friday, my dad and my sister had been talking and my dad had said, you know, I want to have a relationship with Allison again. And so my sister had said to him, well, you need to stop drinking. And so he did, but he ended up having a massive seizure because he didn't get any help, you know, Uh, and he'd been drinking a lot for a number of years. And um, so he fell down a bunch of stairs and was found unconscious. and, And you didn't know the reason that he was dying, that he fell down those stairs Yeah. was to have a relationship with you. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, so, yeah, I had no idea. And so he would—he had split his 
head open and he split his tongue in half and there was a whole bunch of internal bleeding and broken ribs and just craziness. But I'm sitting in the hospital having no idea that him being there has anything to do with me. And uh, and then the doctor comes out and says, we're going to let one of you go in and see him. And I didn't want to go. So my brother and sister that were actually his favorite kids out of the four of us um, started fighting over who was going to go in and see him. And I was sitting there um, reading a cheesy romance novel, pretending that this wasn't my family and this wasn't my life. And Just out of curiosity, was that your escape in life? That was my escape, yeah. I mean, I, I read... Like the, you talk, I'm talking about like those, you know, four to six hundred page romance novels. I would read one. Of My them. mother used to do that, and I never could understand. But now I, I do understand why she used to read those things all the time. She was escaping reality. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I was doing, trying to escape the emergency room. Um, <laughs> so anyway, the, the yeah. So the doctor came back out, and he went and said to my dad, you know, he, here's the kids that are here. My one brother wasn't there. And uh, he came back out and he said, your dad said he wants to see Allison. And um, I didn't, I didn't want to go. And so I said I didn't want to go, but my mother started yelling at me in the emergency room. And so I went to escape my mom. I, you know, I went with a doctor and I was uh, terrified. I hadn't seen my dad in over a year and a half. And um, I was just really scared. And I guess I must have been shaking because the doctor, when we got to, you know, the emergency rooms were just like a bed with um, like a little curtain around it. It wasn't like a separate little room per person or anything. And uh, so when we got to the end of his bed, he said, you know, he's in there and I'll stand right here. And I was like, okay. You know, so he must have realized I was afraid or I don't know why he would have said that. But I remember going around the curtain and um, my dad was lying there and I had never seen him look weak. Um and they, you know, they had sewn his head back up and sewn his tongue back together and stuff, but he, he looked really rough. And um, so when I came in, he... Uh, when he had a seizure and fell down the stairs, how many stairs was it? How much? I think it was 92. My goodness, um, that's quite a fall. Yeah, and they're straight down. So it, hmm. was, it, it was in a, like a townhouse development that was like kind of raised up. And so it was several floors worth of stairs, but they just went straight down. Um into the parking garage. Now, what was the doctor's prognosis on your father? Well, the doctor said that they that they basically they had, you know, managed to sew up a bunch of things, but they couldn't get the bleeding internally to stop. And so they didn't believe that he was going to make it through the night. Because well, the, uh, we're out of time again. I'm sorry. You see, how we experience the love of Father God determines how we receive everything that God has available for us in this life. And I have to tell you, I understand what David said in reference to, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He understood the love of God the Father. And you could take anything away from Paul, anything away from David, but don't take God's love away. And with God's love, no matter what happens on this earth, you will be in perfect peace. That's what God has available to his children. Now, A.J., 
had an alcoholic father, an abusive father, especially while he was drinking, a mother that was an alcoholic. Uh, she had uh, just very severe asthma. She was anorexic. She was suicidal. Uh, she didn't get along with her siblings. And she um, uh, was pulled out of school one day by her mother and found out her father was dying. He was in the hospital. He had fallen down 92 stairs, all sorts of internal bleeding. He was not going to survive. And of all the children, the father says, I want to see A.J., A.J. doesn't want to see him. She was pulled out of school literally by the hair on her head uh, to go see him because he was dying. Uh, and uh, he wanted to make amends with his daughter. And so she goes in. She didn't realize the reason he was dying is he tried to get off of alcohol. And as a result, he went into convulsions and seizures and fell down 92 stairs But his reason for wanting to get off of alcohol was to have a restoration with his daughter, A.J. So A.J. is in there. The doctor overhears the conversation. And uh, what was the conversation like, A.J., between you and your dad? Well, when I uh, went around the curtain, my um, dad just looked over at me. And uh, he opened up his hand and he said, one more chance. And... I said no, and um, my dad started crying, and I don't ever remember seeing my dad cry before that, so it was kind of shocking, and he said it again, one more chance, and I said, I can't do that, and um, I walked away. I just walked back to walk out of the little curtained area, and the doctor stopped me, and he said, you know, your father isn't going to live through the night, so why don't you just let him die thinking that he has one more chance, so I... um, I thought about that for a second and thought, okay, well, I guess that's that's okay as long, you know, if he's going to die, that's fine. And went around and I looked at my dad and I remember just putting, you know, putting up one finger and saying, you have one more chance, you know, and I, I wish I had said it with kindness or anything, but I didn't. I was just, you know, it was almost, I was so angry, you know. And anyway, I, I ran away. Um, literally, I ran right out of the hospital and disappeared for several hours. Um but, but what happened was um, the the bleeding just stopped overnight. I mean, the next morning the doctors were like, we can't explain it, you know, but the bleeding has stopped overnight and, he, you know, he's he's going to be okay. And I, uh, I just knew God had kind of set me up, you know. Um, so I, uh, I, I kind of freaked out a little bit about that. But my, my dad was in the hospital for about a week, a little over a week, and then he came out. He, so... Um, yeah, he ended up checking himself into a drug and alcohol rehab center for about the next, I can't remember if it was six or nine months at this point, actually, but it was ages, and he let all of his clients know. He was an architect. He let them all know that he was an alcoholic and he was getting his family back. And uh, and that sort of started the road for us towards having a relationship. Um, when he got out, he wanted his one more chance that I had promised him, and so that was a a scary moment for me. So I remember sitting down with my dad and my sister because I didn't want to be with my dad on my own and just sort of saying, okay, if you know, if you want your one more chance, then here's the ground rules. If you ever yell at me again, I'll charge you for everything you've ever done. If you ever, you know, touch me again, I'll charge you for everything you've ever done. If you ever, you know, and I, I mean, just went through this horrible list with him and he said, yeah, that sounds fair. 
And um, what that really started for me was probably four or five of the best years of my life where God completely restored our relationship. I mean, more than restored because we didn't really have one before. And um, my dad literally became like my best friend. Um, We both were swimming competitively and we would go to each other's meets and we, you know, go on vacation, just the two of us. And we just, he, he, he was amazing when he wasn't drinking. And, um, I remember in high school, my best friend in high school used to call my dad, my other best friend, cause she knew if I was canceling with her, it was because I was going out with dad. You know, that was wonderful. But then you got hit again. I mean, how much can one person take? Your dad, then after you developed this wonderful relationship with him, he killed himself. Yeah. Why did he do that? I don't know. I don't suppose you ever know why. Um, I was about 19, and, um, you know, we knew he hadn't been sleeping and, and stuff like that. Um, he had insomnia, but just got a call one day, and, and all of a sudden my whole world fell apart again. And, uh, I, you know, I'd been safe for about four years by this time. But if, if I'm honest, I, I didn't know God was still speaking, so I didn't know how to hear his voice. And I, I didn't know where to look in the Bible to make me feel any better. And I hadn't dealt with any of my issues. I just sort of shoved them all down, you know, so they all came back up real fast. And um, life became... I, I notice if believers don't deal with these things, the devil sets them up knowing that they have all this stuff inside of them ready to explode. Sure, it'll eat you alive. Uh, Okay, so you planned to get out of this life the way your dad did. You planned on committing suicide. You were going to over-medicate. What stopped you? I heard the voice of God. I was was at my dad's apartment... um, and my family, you know, my my family was kind of a wreck. Everybody was a wreck. And my sister had just gotten out of this um, psych ward. She's struggling with depression, and my mom was struggling with depression. So it was just they voted, and I was voted in as the strongest member of family to clean up the mess because we couldn't pay anybody to clean up the mess of his suicide. And so I was sitting in this room trying to get the blood off of the floor, and um I just thought, you know what? He had it right. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to make sure it works this time because I had tried before. And um, I got a whole bunch of pills, and I got enough that would have done it, you know. And I was just sort of getting ready to swallow them, and I heard a voice, like audibly heard a voice in the room very loudly say, No, I love you. And I um, it shocked me because I knew nobody was in the house with me, and so I dropped all the pills, and um, when I finally sort of got my head together, I looked down, and the pills were all sitting in his blood, and I I couldn't pick them out, so I just sat there, and I cried until, you know, but half an hour later, my mom came back and found me in the same position. So, um, yeah, (laughs) God stopped me. And uh, not only did he stop you, uh, but a friend then invites you to a church that's not your style. It's John R. Knotts. At that time, it was a vineyard church. And you're seated in the congregation uh, against your will. (laughs) You're coerced to go. And tell me about the first song you heard. 
the first song was a, an old vineyard song called Father, I Want You to Hold Me. And uh, I, I'd never been in a church like this, and I was, you know, sitting two rows from the back under protest. And I remember when that first song started playing, I heard this horrible sound, um, this, you know, sort of horrible wailing kind of sound. And it it probably took me literally about 30 seconds to figure out that I was making that sound. Um, I couldn't contain the pain anymore, you know. And so as, I guess the Holy Spirit was just moving through that room, and I I uncapped in, in a very big way. And so uh, I, I actually cried all the way through worship. I, I don't think a person near me could hear anything. And then John Arnott had a word of knowledge. What was it? Well, he was, at, at the end of speaking, he was uh, standing at the front, and he said, you know, there's somebody here that needs to know that Daddy loves them. Stop. <laughs> We're out of time. Oh, we'll pick up right here. But I want you get to get the Father's Love Kit. It's called Finding Father. It's five CDs by A.J. Jones, and you will experience the love of Father God and understand how much you're valued by him. And all of the promises, uh, they've been kind of limited in your life because you never had the, such a revelation as you're going to get of Father God. In addition, there's a bonus book called Grace and Forgiveness by John Arnott in which he teaches forgiveness is non-negotiable. Uh, you are going to have the most amazing results with special prayers, how to unlock judgments, things that most of you don't even understand, all available for a gift of $35. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697. 1-800-447-2697. AJ uh, was contemplating suicide, uh, overdosing on medication, audible voice of God stopped her, friend forced her to go to a vineyard church, wasn't her style. The very first song was, Father, I want you to hold me. And her, her own father had uh, recently committed suicide. It, it was it, it, just a horrible story. And she went to pieces, just sobbed and cried. And then John Arnott had a word of knowledge. What was that word and what happened to you, AJ? Well, I was uh, at the very back of the sanctuary, and um, I had cried through the most of the service. And he said, there's somebody here that needs to know that Daddy loves them. And I remember thinking in my head, I'm not going up there. There's 60 people here watching me. But it was literally like angels were pushing me or something because I got up out of my seat, even though I had no intention of doing it. And I walked to the front, and I walked into his arms, and I literally cried all over John for about 40 minutes. I mean, snot, tears, the whole thing. <laughs> and uh, John closed out the service um, while I was, I mean, he was supporting most of my weight. I think I was crying so hard. And he closed out the service, and uh, at the end of the service, he introduced me to Jeremy Sinnott, who was our worship pastor, and another man named Ian Ross. And um, those three men between John and Ian and Jeremy um, started fathering me, really, and loving me back to life. Now, how in the world did you get free of your anorexic condition, your suicidal condition, oh. your uh, uh, severe asthma? How did you get free of those things? 
Well, um, the the anorexia and the uh, suicidal was all the same night. It was a number of months later. It was um, in uh, 92, at the beginning of 92, and it was a Sunday night. We were doing uh, like a Sunday night service where they invited all the different churches together. And um, I was sitting there, and um, in the midst of the service, um, the guy that was speaking he stopped and he um, started prophesying over me. So he turned to my friend next to me and he said, "Um, Sandy, who is this sitting next to you? And I didn't really understand prophecy. So in my head, I was kind of mocking him like, well, if you're a prophet, why don't you know my name kind of thing? And anyway, he told me to stand up and he said, he started by saying, AJ, your father's dead and he's not coming back. And uh, that really shocked me because what nobody knew, I mean, nobody knew is I was hallucinating. I had been removed from a mall that week because I was now I had convinced myself that even though I cleaned up the suicide and I identified his body in the morgue and I picked his casket, I had I, I didn't want to deal with life. And so I had convinced myself, no, he's not dead. He's on a trip somewhere. He's going to be back. He's, you know, whatever. And now I was hallucinating and seeing him in this mall. And so I had run through a mall screaming, Daddy, wait. And when I couldn't find him, I dropped to my knees and started bawling in this department store, and so mall security had come and got me. And so he started with that, and I knew right away, I don't know how he knows this, but somehow he's hearing from God, you know. And then he walked back through my life, and he was just like, you know, when you were seven, you tried to kill yourself, and when you were 13, you tried to kill yourself, and he went through all this stuff. And he said, you know, he came to the end of it. I mean, he went on for like 10 minutes, and he said, you don't want your life now, which was accurate. I had written suicide letters, and I was planning my escape, you know, and, uh, you know, still still having trouble. And he said, if you don't want your life, why don't you give it to God and see what he can do with it? And at the end of that service, he called me out into the aisle, and I came out, and he came over, and he prayed for me, and I ended up on the floor. I had I had no idea why I was on the floor. This wasn't part of what I understood church to be about, but I was on the floor, and I started laughing, and it was the first time I'd laughed, you know, since before my dad had died, and I didn't know why I was laughing, and I couldn't stop laughing, but when I got up off the floor, from that day on, I never struggled with eating disorders again. I never struggled with suicide again. I mean, just like all this. Well, you know, the Bible says a merry heart is good medicine. You had about 45 minutes of intense medicine, and and you literally were set free. But what about the severe asthma? Briefly tell me. Well, that happened a a couple of years later, or I guess it was about, well, it it was New Year's Eve going into 94, and I was away with um, YWAM, and uh, my my asthma had sort of stepped up a, a level in the last two years where my lungs were collapsing, and they didn't know why. And so, I mean, I could just be talking, not overexerting myself or anything, and my lower lung would collapse, and and that would signal the start of a very severe attack. So it would be like countdown to getting to a hospital. And I always had medication and crazy stuff with me. Anyway, I uh, that particular evening. Um, We were all taking communion as a team. We were going to fly out the next morning to go to Honduras, and my specialist uh, in Toronto had asked me not to go. He said, I believe if you go to Honduras, you come back in a body bag. There's no way you're going to survive it. And I said, well, you know, I believe that the Lord has told me to go, and so it's it's his plan, not my plan, and, you know, I, I just want to go with what I feel like I'm supposed to do. And so he had phoned my mom and said, you let her go. She comes back in a body bag. 
And so I went down with insurance to have my body shipped back. And uh, I'm sitting there and my lung collapses. And so I left the group and I went into the room to find my medication bag because I also had an oxygen machine I traveled with. And uh, my medication bag was missing. And uh, that was very, very bad. And so I started ripping apart everybody's bags, even though we were leaving in six hours and couldn't find it anywhere. And uh, my cousin came in because she went to YWAM with me and she looked at me and then I just said, call an ambulance. And um, so she called the ambulance, and the leaders of the school came in, and they said, uh, can we pray? And I said, I don't care as long as you've called an ambulance, because I've, I'd had prayer like 30 times and never been healed. And I, in that moment, didn't have faith. My faith was more aligned with this could be very, very, very bad, you know. And um, so they said, fine, well, we've called it, and uh, can we pray? And they prayed. And as they prayed, um, they actually did deliverance more than more than healing prayer, um, and, uh, as they did that, my lung all of a sudden reinflated, the asthma attack just stopped dead. And I haven't had one since then. And it's now been over 20 years. Uh, you got a letter from your doctor. What did it say? Um, it said, well, I, when I went back in to see him, he didn't believe that I was standing in front of him. And so, um, you know, we'd gotten kind of close cause he saw me every week. And so he was like, you didn't go. And I said, no, I did go do the test. God's healed me. And, uh, so he did the test. He did all these pulmonary function tests, which I had to do on a regular basis. I mean, they had so much information on me because they didn't know why my lungs were collapsing. And uh, he did them. And when the information came back, he said, your lungs are more than three times the size of the capacity that they've ever had on a very, very good day. And he wrote me a letter that said, I cannot explain this as anything other than an act of God. Was this doctor a Christian? No, he wasn't. He was a lovely Jewish guy. (laughs) <laughs> Even better. Uh, you know, with all the experiences you've gone through, uh, with the understanding that that you have now, I, I, I've been listening to your teaching uh, because we're making available the five uh, CDs called Finding Father that every Christian's got to understand. Uh but your teaching is so amazing. For instance, uh, your revelation when Jesus uh, said to his disciples, uh, uh, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. What has God shown you about that? That's in John 14, verse 18. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it says, I, I will, yeah, I will not leave you as orphans. Well, I mean, he, Jesus there is actually, he's not speaking to physical orphans. He's speaking to the actual disciples, and we know who some of their parents were, but he's actually speaking about a spiritual condition. And um, the revelation that sort of goes along with that is just most of us are, even though we are loved by the Father, and it's a positional truth that we are children of, you know, we're his children, we're not living like we are. We're not living like we're fully loved. We're not living like we're accepted. We're not living like we have an inheritance. We're still living like orphans. We're still living like we have to fight for everything we can get, like, you know, we're in it on our own instead of him actually being our father and helping us live our lives and live them to the fullest. And what he meant was you and I are designed to live 24 hours a day, seven days a week in the father's presence. That's, that's the place that we're designed to live. And we're, we're, not, we're not actually meant to live any place less than that. And most of us are. Most of us aren't living in the father's presence. And, and you know what? As you, with all you've been through, as you live in the Father's presence, uh, you're seeing the most outrageous miracles. Tell me about the time uh, when you prayed for eight 
deaf people. That that was awesome. We were um, we were in Iceland, and we were just you know having a meeting in Iceland, and um, there was eight deaf people in one service just during like the the worship and ministry time at the beginning that all got completely healed. And my my probably my favorite ones within those eight were this couple that were in their sixties and had been deaf their whole lives. They were married, and they came up on the stage and they heard each other talking for the first time. Um, with with us standing there, and they just were bawling, and everybody was bawling. I mean, it was amazing. What's it like to be to know you're not an orphan? You're living in God's presence twenty four seven, and you have the pure love of Father God. What is that like for you, AJ? It changes everything. I mean, it it. It enables you to deal with the stuff that you've been through and trust that God's going to get you through it. It enables you not to be defined by what you've been through, but to be defined by who God says that you are. It changes absolutely everything. You can go out and be his representative, be his kid, and see his kingdom come wherever you go because you know that you're his. We want everyone everywhere to experience the love of Father God 24-7. My guest, A.J. Jones, experienced that. And she wants to help everyone, everywhere, experience the love of Father God. Uh, you know, I really, uh, I, I was seeing myself and my father, uh, as I listened to your teaching, A.J., on the different types of fathers. And let's face it, we're in an imperfect world. Even if you have a good father, relatively speaking, uh, that you still have some of these six different types of fathers. Uh, explain a few types of fathers that perhaps some of our mishpucha may have or have had. Well, um, there's the absent father, which... You know, he might be absent because of death, but he also just might be absent because he works a whole lot. Um, and typically, if you've had an absent father, I mean, what we tend to do is whatever our experiences have been with authority figures, so with our dads or our moms, um, we tend to place that image onto Father God. And so if if our dads have been absent, then we tend to, you know, live in the world like we're doing everything on our own. We tend to be very intense um, kind of people. And um, we honestly believe that, that God's not interested in our lives, you know, that he's, that he's maybe watching at a distance. Even if we have a relationship with God, there's a hindrance to being able to access him because of the way that we view him. So dependent on how our natural father was, one of these six categories, and could have been all six, as a matter of fact, sure. uh, there's a degree of our understanding of the love of God the Father that's skewed, and that and, and has to be fixed. Yeah. Uh, is, tell me some other types of fathers. Um, well, the performance-oriented father is probably the one that we see most uh, universally, and that would just be, you know, that you're rewarded as long as your behavior is good and your performance is good, but if, you're, if your per- performance and behavior is less than satisfactory, well, then, you know, God's angry or disinterested or... Uh, well, you know what I found in my case? Uh, my father was always very critical to me, uh, uh, of me, of my actions. Uh, how, how would that mess up my vision of Father God? 
Well, then you think, you know, when, as you're walking through life, Sid, you know, whenever there's moments where you think, oh, I probably could have done better here or whatever, you're probably thinking, God thinks that. God's probably being critical about, you should have been able to do this better and you should know better over here. And, you know. Uh, Well, you know what? I don't think that. But I'm always thinking, I could have done something better. Always. Yeah. But so it's all it's all layers and, and and different degrees, which origin is in our natural father. Yeah. It, 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 to me, that's really it, it, it got. I have to tell you, when I listened to your tapes, it really got me thinking about myself in areas I haven't thought about for years. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> I mean, the the good thing is, is you know, God can heal absolutely anything, right? So he he loves to walk us back through things that are still unresolved, so that he we can actually get to the level of intimacy that he desires. You know, we always think that we're the ones that are desiring intimacy with him, but and and that's true. But he desires intimacy with us so much more. I mean, he wouldn't have sent Jesus if he didn't desire it. Now, just speaking of intimacy. Uh, that you now have with God the Father. And and I have to tell you, A.J., if you could have that intimacy with all that you've been through, anyone could have that intimacy. And I think that's why God raised you up. What do you think? I think that's exactly it. I mean, God is no respecter of persons. The Bible's clear about that. So what he will do for me, he will do for anyone. And, And you know what? Now you're free to receive everything that God has to offer in this life. And one of the things that intrigues me is the very specific dreams God gives you now. Yeah. I mean, God, yeah, God um, quite frequently gives me dreams where, you know, within a day or two, the exact thing that I've dreamt will happen. So um, that's that's pretty fun. <laughs> Um, but then he, he's also um, taken me and he's sh- shown me things that are happening in heaven. And um, it's, it's, just, it's just wonderful to not be afraid of God anymore so that I can actually hear him. What you talk a lot about forgiveness, especially the book we're offering by John or not, along with your five CD set uh, called Finding Father. Uh, give me one nugget that's very important on forgiveness or unforgiveness. There's a there's a quote that I um that I quote while I'm teaching on it that just says to forgive is to pr- set the prisoner free and then realize the prisoner was you. You know, that's so profound. I I'm going to ask you to say that again slowly. Okay. It says to forgive is to set the prisoner free and then realize the prisoner was you. That is amazing. And not only that, the reason that God the Father wants you free so you can walk in everything he has for you, no matter what happens in this world, is there's a great Jewish wedding that's about ready to happen, and you've had two visions. Uh, Tell me briefly about the two visions you had of the wedding feast. I have. I've, I've had um, I've had two visions of the banqueting table in, in stages of preparation. And so the first one I had, um, I was getting a tour of heaven by an angel. And um, we walked out into this courtyard, and there was this table that was so long I couldn't actually see where it ended. Um, but the area around it was um, decorated, and they were putting the like the table pieces down the middle, the decoration down the middle of a, if you imagine an elaborate table, you know, they were putting that down the middle and, you know, with candles and stuff um, and just starting to get 
place settings set out. Um, and the second time that he took me and he showed me the exact same table, um, they were putting down the plates on the table. And I remember when I saw them putting down the plates and I could see that the, the you know, decorations were done. We were now getting to the stuff we're going to eat off of. I remember looking at that and thinking, this is going to happen really soon. Um, and it, it was it was pretty exciting. It was actually during that whole vision, the Lord showed me the the bridal chamber and a, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And it, it I was just like, wow. And tell me that second vision, though. It was at John Arnott's home. Um, the first one was at John Arnott's home, um, where the angel was giving me a tour of heaven. And, and the second one actually happened in England. But you saw uh, something called the library. Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it, it was this huge room, um, and it, I don't even know how many stories it would have gone up, maybe like three or four stories high. And it was funny because it was, it was bright and it was beautiful, kind of like an old English library, but there was no lights, but it was lit. Um, so I was sort of confused by that in the thing, but there was all of these leather bound, um, books, you know, just walls and walls of them, and the angels accessing them, taking them down, writing things in them, and putting them back up. And uh, I remember asking the angel that was showing me the room, you know, what are these books? And he said, these are the books of people's lives. And I was like, wow, God, you're really paying attention to everything. Well, he says that in his word. We'll be held accountable for everything we do. I'm so glad about repentance and the blood of Jesus to wipe our slate clean uh, and the power God gives us to overcome. Uh, but I want, in your words, to describe what it was like when Jesus started dancing with you. Oh, wow, it was awesome. Um, that, that was after I saw the table and uh, we came back into the ballroom, which we had walked through to go and see where the where the wedding feast was, and uh, we came back in, and I, um, in in the vision, told him I, you know, I wasn't, you know, in this dress all of a sudden, and and I was like, I don't know how to dance, you know, I I don't know how to do this, and he said, you can stand on my feet, and I'll show you, and um, so in. I danced with Jesus, but I was standing on his feet um, and, and just dancing through the ballroom. You have to understand the, the impact of that visual for me was incredible because when I was a teenager after my relationship had been restored with my dad, uh, I had gone to this building opening with him, and I remember he asked me to dance, and we were. I went out there and I said, I can't dance, I don't know how to dance, and he had said, you can stand on my feet. And so the the Lord had echoed back to me a moment of intimacy um, that was an invitation to go to a place of intimacy with God that I hadn't been yet, and uh, it was it was amazing. It was life changing. We know how your relationship was. It was a disaster. What's your relationship with being in God's presence twenty four seven? Well, as I said, you know it changes everything, and uh, my life is. 100% different. I have a wonderful husband and two wonderful kids, and I'm in full-time ministry, and the Lord shows up and changes lives, and He really has redeemed everything that I've been through to help other people go through uh, things and be able to walk into God's hands and know that He's going to take care of it. So, what, you, you know what this is all saying to me? God knew that. 
God has every hair on your head numbered. Not two sparrows fall to the ground without him personally being aware of it and of how much more value are you. I tell you right now, by the Spirit of God, you have value. Yes, you, you listening to me right now, you have value. God's even healing people with back problems right now. But I have to tell you, as you come into intimacy with God the Father and recognize how he values you, how he has the best interest for you at heart, as you realize that we're so fast approaching the return of Jesus and he has an assignment for you, you will not fulfill your assignment until you understand your Father, your Heavenly Father's love for you and walk in it 24-7. I want you to get the five-CD set, Finding Father, and the book by John Arnott on forgiveness, and it's going to revolutionize your life. We're making this Father's Love Kit available for a gift of $35. To hear this week's interview in its entirety, or to watch archives of our television show, It's Supernatural, visit our website at www.sidroth.org. That's www.sidroth.org. To receive a complimentary copy of our bi-monthly teaching newsletter, materials catalog, or information about becoming Mishpocha or Chalitzim, write to me, Sid Roth, Post Office Box 1918, Brunswick, Georgia, 31521. Or call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697. To place a credit card order, call anytime, 1-800-447-2697. For all other calls, the number is 912-265-2500. That's 912-265-2500. For a CD of this week's broadcast, Send a donation of $10 or more to Sid Roth, that's S-I-D-R-O-T-H, Post Office Box 1918, Brunswick, Georgia, 31521.